podcast listeners. I'm your host, Jacko's Wetsalute. This is the NK News podcast today. It is Tuesday, February 7th, 2023. I'm joined on Zoom by Siegfried S. Hecker, who is in the United States back in February 6th. So he's still a day behind us to discuss his new book, Hinge Points, that is all about North Korea's nuclear weapons program. But first, please, a request and a reminder to all of you listening to leave a review about this podcast on whatever platform you use. And please share this episode with everyone you think should hear it or might be interested. And what's more, like and subscribe to the whole series. Second, check out nknews.org, where each day my journalist colleagues write the best North Korea-focused journalism. A subscription for a year costs less than a dollar a day. And that helps to fund the excellent reporting that my colleagues produce, as well as this podcast. Thirdly, follow NKNews.org on Twitter and me at JackoZ. Now, to introduce my guest today, Professor Siegfried, or Sieg Hecker, is, amongst other things, a nuclear scientist. He was the fifth director of the U.S. Nuclear Research Laboratory, Los Alamos, and is now a senior fellow and professor emeritus at Stanford University. Sieg was one of the first outsiders to whom North Korea showed the plutonium that it had produced and gave a tour of its Yongbyon nuclear facility. He has co-authored a book about North Korea's nuclear weapons program called Hinge Points, an inside look at North Korea's nuclear program. You can find it in all good bookshops now, and you can find Sieg Hecker on Twitter at Siegfried Hecker, and we'll make sure to put a link to that in the show notes. Welcome on the podcast, Sieg. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much, Jacko. It's my pleasure to be here with you. So let's go way back almost 19 years. In January 2004, you were invited to visit and tour the Yongbyon nuclear facility in North Korea. And to put that in some historical context, two years earlier, in January 2002, US President George W. Bush first described North Korea as being a part of an axis of evil. And just four months before your visit, the first round of six-party talks about North Korea's nuclear program had started in Beijing. Why were you invited to visit North Korea's nuclear facilities, and what did you expect going in there? So, Jacko, actually, I never wanted to go to North Korea. <laughs> and, and the North Koreans did not invite me, per se. So the, the way I got to North Korea is through my colleague uh, at Stanford, uh, Professor John Lewis, John Lewis had been doing track two diplomacy with China and actually also uh, with North Korea. Track two being, of course, non-official, non-governmental. He was a Stanford professor. He'd been to North Korea eight times before this 2004 visit. In late 2003, he was invited to come back. And the North Koreans told him, uh, they're going to take him to the Yongbyon nuclear complex. And at that time, I was still at Los Alamos, uh, a senior fellow uh, at Los Alamos, uh, after I had left the directorship there at Los Alamos. And John called me up and said, I, I need you to come to North Korea. And I said, John, I don't want to go to North Korea. By that time, I'd been to Russia many times. I'd been to China uh, I'd been to France uh, and, of course, uh, uh, also to the UK nuclear complexes. I had no desire to go to North Korea. John was a very persistent guy. And I thought, well, my last hope was that the U.S. government won't let me go because I was still an employee of Los Alamos National Laboratory, although the way the laboratory was run, it was run by the University of California. So I was actually not an official 
government employee. I was an employee of the University of California, but I nevertheless, uh, you know, I thought they would never let me go. And my last hope was that even if they let me go, the North Koreans would never let me in. You know, why in the world would they let a director, yeah. a former director of Los Alamos National Laboratory, get into their nuclear complex? It turns out I was wrong in both cases. I wound up in January of 2004 in North Korea, and much to my surprise, as you indicated, they showed me through their nuclear complex. But also, the diplomats were delighted to have me there. So I was, I was absolutely, totally wrong. And so they were delighted to have me there because they clearly were going to send a message to the U.S. government through my presence. Right, because as I mentioned just a few months earlier, the six-party talks had uh, had started uh, in Beijing. Could you give us a, a nutshell summary of what Yongbyon is, how it got there, and what is its importance to North Korea's nuclear weapons program? Right. So uh, to do that, let me just back off uh, uh, for one minute, which I do in all my classes when I teach all things nuclear. It, it takes three things for a nuclear arsenal. You have to make the bomb fuel. You have to weaponize, which means to design, to go ahead, uh, build, and test a nuclear weapon. And then you have to have delivery systems and, and integrate those. So the Yongbyon complex is the one for the bomb fuel, uh, and that is the production of bomb fuel. And at the time that I was there in 2004, uh, the only bomb fuel that they were producing there was plutonium. Uh, and again, in terms of you know lecturing, two types of bomb fuel, there's plutonium, which you make in nuclear reactors. There's highly enriched uranium, which you make through uranium enrichment uh, today that's typically done with centrifuges. So these are two very different processes. So th those are two very different processes. And they can't be done in the same place, I'm guessing, or in so, the same well, facility. They can be done without question. It, it turns out the uranium enrichment part doesn't have a large footprint. And so that can be done almost anywhere. Uh -huh. The plutonium production is a very different situation because you you have to build a reactor, and the reactors are typically uh, outside, although the Soviets at one time had one inside of a granite mountain, but they're typically outside. And so that's what the North Koreans had. They actually got started with the help of the Soviet Union for peaceful nuclear energy, and the Soviet Union built them in the 1960s, a small research reactor. And that research reactor was not for making plutonium, it was for doing research in the nuclear arena, and it was also for making medical isotopes, for example, for nuclear medicine. Uh, however, the, the North Koreans then, and I can explain in more detail later through the 1980s and then into the 1990s, uh, they developed all of the necessary capabilities at the Yongbyon nuclear complex to be able to produce the plutonium bomb fuel. And so they could make the reactor fuel in their fuel fabrication facility. That means uranium, because the uranium are the fuel elements you put in the reactor. They had the reactor, and they built their own reactor. And it turns out it was a reactor patterned after one in the UK. And it was one that was not very good for making electricity, which is one thing you can do with reactors. Mm -hmm. It was very good for making weapons-grade plutonium. That's the second thing you can do. So they built their own reactor and got that operational in 1986, had been running it for a while. And then 
once you produce the plutonium in the reactor, then you have to extract it from that fuel. We call it spent or used fuel. And that takes a reprocessing facility. And so in a long-winded way, then what they had at Yongbyon is all the capabilities yeah. to produce plutonium in the reactor and then to extract the plutonium in the reactor and to do whatever you wanted to do with the plutonium you know, in terms of metal casting, et cetera. So that's what was at Yongbyon. Did your trip alarm you? Oh, uh, without question, uh, it, it alarmed me because in the end, the issues that I had hoped that trip would resolve, and I haven't gone into all that background yet here in our discussion. I do that in, in the book, you know, actually at, at great length. But as, as it turns out, the, the North Koreans had moved along through the 1980s into 1994 running the reactor, uh, actually producing this spent fuel, and then putting the spent fuel in a pool in order to cool it temperature-wise and radioactively. Uh, and then it was sitting there because the Americans and North Koreans in 1994 uh, signed what they call the agreed framework. And that is the North Koreans had agreed that they would take these reactors, one that they had operating, two more that were under construction, that were good bomb uh, plutonium producing reactor, and they would trade them for two reactors that we call light water reactors to make electricity. And so the spent fuel had been sitting there from 1994 to 2002. The Americans had actually worked with the North Koreans to make sure they could be held in this pool and, and do it in such a way that it was safe. However, when the administrations changed from Clinton administration, which signed the agreed framework, to the Bush administration, which didn't like the agreed framework uh, and essentially walked away from it in October of 2002, then here we were in 2003 with the North Koreans with essentially this plutonium in spent fuel uh, in a pool sitting there. And the question was, had the North Koreans actually taken, taken that spent fuel out of the pool, taken it to this reprocessing facility and extracted the plutonium? And those are the things we didn't know. And mm -hmm. the U.S. government intel community was divided as to whether they actually took it out or did not take it out. And then we had no inkling of how good are the North Koreans uh, in dealing with plutonium? Right. Can they chemically process it? Can they actually cast it, do all of those things? So to make a long story short, uh, in terms of was I alarmed, the answer is heavens yes, mm. because what they showed me uh, was just that they were extremely knowledgeable. They finally convinced me that spent fuel rods had been withdrawn they convinced me that they most likely had reprocessed it. And then as we were sort of doing the final analysis in a conference room in this reprocessing facility, they actually turned to me and said, well, Dr. Hecker, we've now shown you our deterrent. And what they meant by that is, you know, they showed me actually the reactor was operating again, the spent fuel was gone, 
They knew everything there was to know about the chemistry of reprocessing the plutonium. And I said, no, 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 wait, wait a minute. First of all, the deterrent, you also have to do weaponization. You have to do, you know, delivery systems. And all you did was show me that maybe you actually reprocessed the plutonium. And that's when they asked me and they said, would you like to see our product? And uh, I was a little bit of loss of words mm -hmm. at that point. And I said, mm -hmm. you mean the plutonium? Uh, and they said, well, yes. And I said, well, sure. You know, I've dealt with plutonium since I, I was a kid, essentially a, a summer student <laughs> in Los Alamos in 1965. I said, sure. And lo and behold, they brought in uh, this red metal box. Inside was a white wooden box. They opened it up uh, and there were uh, two marmalade jars, one with the plutonium powder, the other one with plutonium metal. In the end, I wound up holding the one with the plutonium metal because in essence, if you have the plutonium in a glass jar, that stops the alpha penetration, radioactive penetration. So it doesn't ah. do you any harm. Wow. So I was not risking my life doing yeah. this and I knew it. But at any rate, to make a long story short, all of that you know, came together in a way that by the time I left, even though I was very careful to be very conservative about what I concluded, how much they can yeah. do. Their knowledge of the plutonium chemistry, their knowledge of plutonium casting and metallurgy was so good that I personally was convinced if they can make this plutonium that they showed me, they can make the bomb. Right. That's the alarm. Because that was in early 2004. Of course, North Korea didn't test its first nuclear device until late 2006. It's since then. 2006. Yeah, 2006. 2006, yeah. And it has now done uh, six tests of, of nuclear devices over. But when you went there, they had not yet done one. Do you Are you familiar with anybody, any foreigner who's ever been present in North Korea during a nuclear test? So we do, I do not know that. There, there are several rumors and stories that perhaps some technical people from what we might consider undesirable countries were also present at North Korea nuclear tests. Right. And by that, I mean, for example, Iran has been mentioned. Also, uh, Pakistan had actually been mentioned because there was quite a bit of connection between Pakistan's AQ no. Khan uh, and the North Koreans. I personally do not believe that any foreigners have ever been present at a North Korean nuclear test. So you had unprecedented access to North Korea's nuclear facilities over many visits with seven visits to North Korea and four to the Yongbyon nuclear facility. Why do you think North Korea wanted you, an American, to see all this? Yeah, that's a question I kept asking myself uh, on, on each of these uh, trips. Uh, from my standpoint is they wanted to send a message back to the U.S. government. You know, and even though I explained to you I was not a U.S. government employee, but that's lost on the North Koreans. As far as I was, as they were concerned, I had a straight line, you know, to the U.S. government. Although yeah. they understood that from the second time on, I was at Stanford, and so I was non-governmental. But still, they knew that I had a straight line to the U.S. government, mm -hmm. and so they used me, sort of a technical expert to send a very specific message to the U.S. government. Uh, right. and, and then you could say, well, why would they use me to send such a message? Why would they, for example, show me the plutonium to convince me they really had 
the plutonium bomb, or later on, and we can get to that in 2010, uh, when they actually showed me the centrifuge facility, where now in the conclusion is they can also make a highly enriched uranium bomb. And then in between, even when I didn't get the young Bjorn on all of the visits except one, I would still meet with the top nuclear people, uh, like after the nuclear test, yeah. and we would have technical discussions. Those, in some cases, were almost as useful as seeing the facilities. So in, in all of those cases, my view now is they, they were doing that to send a message to the United States, look, this is what we're capable of, and you ought to be paying attention to us. Yeah. In other words, it was a way for them to signal the United States Look, we're interested in having you take our concerns and deal with those concerns. So they were sending the message that that's what they're interested in. But the last time they invited you in was in 2010. That's already nearly 13 years ago. That was under Kim Jong-il, not Kim Jong-un. Why do you think North Korea stopped inviting you to come and take a look and to send that message back to the States? So that's a question I ask myself all the time as well. And it, it's not. Uh, because I haven't tried to get back in. Uh, and so I clearly sent a message, you know, after 2010, the way we typically did uh, is to say, hey, we're ready to come back in. You know, if you uh, think that discussions would be uh, useful, and then they didn't uh, in invite me anymore. Mm. I, I think the best that I can sort of put together now in looking back. So in in 2010, they had the last major message they wanted to get across. You know, first it was the plutonium, the reactors are working, we extracted the plutonium, and of course, you know, we can make more plutonium as long as the reactors are operating. And then once they showed me the centrifuges, now they also showed the American government that they can make highly enriched uranium. And the reason that's so significant is highly enriched uranium is actually not as good a bomb fuel as plutonium. Uh, you know, if you look at all the nuclear powers today, their uh, nuclear arsenals are primarily plutonium arsenals. And even the ones like Pakistan that started with highly enriched uranium and have moved over towards plutonium. So plutonium is preferable. But plutonium, uh, as I mentioned, you have to have a reactor and the signatures for a reactor operation are pretty easy to see from space. Uh, and so we know when the reactor is operating, we know something about the design of the reactor, we know how much material they're making. And so my assessment, which I did then every year of, you know, how much plutonium could they've made, we've got a pretty good sense. And mm. by the way, today, their total plutonium production of uh, inventory is less than 50 kilograms. And how, how many bombs could you make with that? And, and let's say it takes about six kilograms uh, for a bomb. So that's not a lot of bombs. That's about eight bombs of plutonium. Uh, eight bombs worth. Yeah. Right. So on the highly enriched uranium, what's different there is those centrifuges can easily fit uh, in a building that would have very little signature. They could put it underground in a tunnel somewhere. Uh, in other words, you just don't know where they have their uranium facilities. And so in other words, they can make a lot, mm. or we don't know how much uh, you right. know they actually make. And so that's the message. Look, you know we have plutonium. 
We can also make highly enriched uranium, and you'll never know how much we have. When mm -hmm. I came back, you know, again, I was very impressed with, with that centrifuge facility. It was quite remarkable, considering, you know, quite frankly, how old some of the other nuclear facilities were. Yeah. And they put it in Yangbyeong, which was surprising. They put it in Yangbyeong. It was ultra modern. And so they did a great job in constructing it. I also had a pretty good idea of the timeline uh, that it took them to move that into Yangbyeong. And it was such that they had to have an, another centrifuge facility someplace else, another uh -huh. centrifuge facility or two. So that's been the big question mark since 2010, and that they were not going to tell us. However, uh, you know, when we, uh, when we get to the issue of hinge points, there were several times where we had a chance to get back in, and the U.S. walked away. And, and that's, for me, from a technical standpoint, those created some of the hinge points when we could have gotten back in, but we didn't, you know, for whatever uh, political reasons. Now, to get to your main uh, question, Jacko, so why haven't they invited me since? Yeah. Because the things they've been wanting to show the U.S. government since then, they were able to do in other ways. Mm. In other words, rocket launches. Rocket launches okay? yeah. We always know when a rocket launch occurs, they don't need me. Right. And besides, they show them on KCNA and Kim Jong-un is there. So the whole business of rocket launches. And then, you know, they even went as far as as showing us, you know, Kim Jong-un, first Kim Jong-il, and then Kim Jong-un touring their factories or actually showing mock-ups uh, of their nuclear weapons. So they, they decided by letting us, you know, look from space and for what they publicized themselves to send those messages of what they have in a different way uh, than through people like myself. Sig, here's a question I've asked many people over the years, um, sometimes on this podcast. As best as you can deduce, based on what you've learned, when did the leadership of North Korea decide to procure a nuclear arsenal, and when did the country begin its nuclear weapons program in earnest? Now, if you have multiple potential dates in your mind, please tell us all of them. Yeah, so that's the part. Again, I'm, you know, I'm not sure of that because, as you might imagine, the North Koreans certainly didn't share that with me. And so all I can tell you is essentially uh, what I've read and then what my assessment is of that. Uh, you know, they say the interest in nuclear weapons goes back to the Korean War, and that is Kim Il Sung responded to General MacArthur, you know, thinking about using nuclear weapons. Uh, so it might go. The interest may go back that far. And then there are indications, uh, and so it's been written uh, that Kim Il-sung actually asked uh, the Soviets, you know, to supply him with nuclear weapons, and they refused uh, to do so. So the, the best way that I can put it together, coming at it from a technical standpoint, mm. uh, is that um, Kim Il-sung started the nuclear program uh, in a dual-track mode. And by this dual track, I mean differently than the dual track I mentioned in the book. The dual track here was he had the Soviets help him with a civilian nuclear program, nuclear energy, nuclear research, nuclear medicine. But at the same time, he also had in mind that, of course, that teaches them something about nuclear, 
which can be of some utility if you really want to go in a nuclear weapon direction. Mm -hmm. And so he kept that option open as the Soviets were helping them with their civilian program in the 1960s and 1970s. Then my own analysis is sometime in the early 80s, Kim Il-sung decided he was going to take a bigger step in the direction of making sure that he had the second track uh, to nuclear weapons. And that's when he decided to build his own reactor. Uh, and this reactor, as I mentioned, was a reactor that was good for making bomb-grade plutonium. It's called a gas-cooled you know, graphite-moderated reactor, reasonably small, only five megawatts electric power, and reasonable small plutonium-producing capacity, essentially about six kilograms or one bomb's worth a year. So when he built that reactor on his own, quietly, he didn't have the he didn't have help from the Soviet Union. At least initially, the U.S. didn't know much, except they started seeing structures go up in 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 Yongbyon. Mm -hmm. That's when he made a decision that he's going to be serious. He followed that with uh, building a reprocessing facility, which one that was patterned uh, after one in Mole in Belgium. And once he starts building that reprocessing facility, okay, that gets a lot more serious now. And that was done in the latter half of the 1980s. So as you come into 1990-91 timeframe, he now has the critical components that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Fuel fabrication, he built that capability. He has a reactor that can operate and make plutonium. And he has a reprocessing facility that can extract that plutonium. So he's sitting there in the early 1990s, having put in place those capabilities, you know, should he want to go and use them. But mm. that was also the time that I try to bring out in the book that uh, he also had a very important political decision to make. And that is that his world essentially went to pots with yeah. the end of the Soviet Union. It was also around the same time that George H.W. Bush removed nuclear weapons that were stationed in the southern half of the Korean Peninsula. So just as South Korea was becoming denuclearized, North Korea was ready, had all the pieces in place, as you say, to go nuclear. And that was around the time also when the inspectors from the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, when they first visited the Yongbyon reactor, already all of those pieces for the plutonium fuel cycle were, were in place. All, as you say, all of those things came together at the time. Mm. Uh, from a political standpoint, as you might imagine, you know, having George H.W. Bush remove the U.S. nuclear weapons from the peninsula uh, was positive. Did that turn Kim Il-sung towards saying, geez, maybe these Americans aren't just bad guys at all? I don't think that was that big a deal. What actually was much more important to Kim Il-sung to push him in the direction uh, of dealing with the Americans was the fact that the Soviet Union, uh, and particularly Shevardnadze, uh, came in 1990, like September 1990, and told Kim Il-sung that Soviet Union is going to recognize South Korea. Mm. And then the Chinese, at the same time, yeah. start their connections to South Korea from an economic standpoint that was particularly important. And so Kim Il-sung sits there, and, and even though George H.W. Bush sort of took some of the heat off, 
But what was really important to push him in the direction, he said now he can't trust the Soviets anymore. And by the time one Soviet Union collapsed and Russia came on board with Yeltsin, Yeltsin had no use for North Korea whatsoever. Yeah. So they actually considered the Russians antagonistic. And then the Chinese really linked up with the South Koreans economically. And so that's when Kim Il-sung actually said, you know, perhaps we're better off with the mm -hmm. Americans. And that's when I believe, and, and, you know, and I believe that because I've talked to so many other colleagues who've been through all of this diplomatic history saying that that's when Kim Il-sung made the decision to seek strategic accommodation or normalization with the Americans. Coming back to the IAEA, do you believe the IAEA was a fair, independent, honest and transparent actor in its dealings with North Korea throughout the 1990s? To what extent was it uh, controlled or influenced by the US? Oh, no, uh, that's, that's a very, very good question. I hadn't even thought uh, of, of that, Jacko. Oh. <laughs> no, no, the, the IAEA was an independent agency. They were not uh, in there you know, uh, doing uh, the United States bidding. There were people like Oli Heinonen, uh, who is a very good colleague uh, of mine. He was in there in uh, the North Korean facilities several times. There's nobody that can tell Oli Heinonen what to do in those facilities besides the IAEA. Those guys were in there representing the IAEA. I thought they did a fair job from an IAEA standpoint. However, you know, the North Koreans were always, and they were always concerned, as you might imagine, you know, mm. they lived in a very different world. They were concerned about anybody coming into the country, coming into their facilities. And so they never trusted anyone. And I found out later when I started going in there, they hated the IAE folks. Oh. You know, so the North Koreans had no use for the IAE folks, but mm. the IAE folks stuck, in my opinion, to what their role was. And the, the North Koreans were never leveling with them exactly. And of course, then that's making that makes an inspector uh, you know, even more difficult to live right. with. And actually, Jacka, that allows me to make the one point. So one of the reasons they showed me as much as they did, because both I told them and they agreed that I was not there as an inspector. So they showed me much more than they ah. would typically show an inspector because they're things they wanted me to see yeah. to take back out rather than things they wanted to hide. Interesting. Now, in 1994, North Korea signed the and the U.S. signed the agreed framework. Uh, that's a, a, a big topic and takes up a lot of discussion in your book, obviously. But um, I don't want to focus on this point too much. But first of all, my understanding is that the, the agreed framework uh, was to deal with the plutonium uh, matter and not with highly enriched uranium. So we have to understand clearly what it sought to do and what it didn't seek to do. So could you talk a little bit about that, please? Yeah. So if if you re the the agreed framework was actually, you know, from a diplomatic standpoint, a, a very short piece of paper, you know, laying out uh, the agreement. Uh, actually, they didn't call it an agreement. It was called a framework for diplomatic reasons inside the United States. And so it was meant to deal with the Yongbyon complex and essentially the North Koreans saying they're first going to freeze and eventually you know, get rid of the plutonium 
nuclear production complex, the reactors and all the ancillary facilities. And in return, the U.S. would lead an international coalition to supply them with two light water uh, reactors, modern, large light water reactors. So that was the, the main dealing. However, there's certainly wording in the agreed framework and then actually the various agreed statements that were made that reflect back to a North-South agreement in January of 1992, mm. which essentially said they're not going to do any nuclear weapons program. Right. And so my own view was the, that, that agreed framework essentially said that North Korea should not be pursuing a nuclear weapons program. And in the plutonium uh, arena, they did, uh, in my opinion, at least what they promised to do. Right. Uh, although uh, what I cover in the book, and that's not covered in, uh, in many uh, papers or articles, is my assessment of what the North Koreans were likely doing in the 1990s. Uh, and one of those things, which certainly is also not in keeping with doing nothing related to nuclear weapons, is they kept up their nuclear design, their, their weapons design work in the 1990s. And the reason I say that, because they couldn't have gotten to where they did in 2004 and 2006 yeah. if they hadn't done that work. Right. They must have been doing work with plutonium casting in the 1990s. Because if they didn't, there is no way they could learn about plutonium and cast and show me the kind of piece that they did in 2004. Yeah. So that's what I mean in the book when I explain that the North Koreans were pursuing a dual track strategy. Mm -hmm. One is they were seriously pursuing diplomacy in the spirit of what I just told you of Kim Il-sung seeing that change in geopolitics around 1990-91. But at the same time, they were also going to make sure they had the hedges in order to have a nuclear uh, weapons program if they needed in case diplomacy doesn't work out. Right. And, and what I say in the book is they, they pursued these two. They never fully gave up on either one. And which one was higher priority than the other depended on where they were, you know, as far as external relations, internal relations, technical advances, and so forth. Which party do you think is more responsible for the failure of the agreed framework? Some like to blame North Korea for acting in bad faith, while others blame the United States. Where do you put the blame? So that's actually not the right question uh, to ask as to who is to blame. There's no question that North Korea is to blame. From a standpoint of the North Koreans will tell you, Look, the Americans signed up to all of these things, you know, normalizations, uh, you, you know, and, and what we do is eventually establishing ambassadorial level, you know, connections between the countries, supplying the heavy fuel oil at a certain pace, uh, making progress on the LWRs at a certain pace. The U.S. didn't do all those things the way that the agreement said. So the U.S. didn't do all these, uh, all of its things. The North Koreans clearly didn't do all of theirs. And particularly since they were developing uranium enrichment, and especially, in my opinion, they had already done some of that in the 1980s. That's what we gathered in discussions with the North Koreans. 
they put it aside. And then in the mid to late 1990s, uh, they went ahead and scaled that up with help from AQ Khan. And the centrifuges. Uh, company, the AQ Khan from, from Pakistan. Right. And so they, they were there following the uranium enrichment and, uh, as I said, probably doing the plutonium metallurgy and the other work. And so what came now is at the time where the uranium enrichment revelation was first really understood by the Americans was back in the Clinton administration. Okay, so the Clinton administration said, ah, you know, that's, that's not in keeping with what our agreement was, but let's wait with that. Let's not lose what we have by the fact that they have frozen their plutonium program that they had this plutonium in the pool that they could extract to make bombs. So they essentially said, let's deal with that later. So the Bush administration, so both places can be blamed. What the Bush administration needs to be blamed for, and that's one of the hinge point, is they decided to kill and walk away from the agreement. And that was a really, really bad technical decision. So if, I'm a, if I want to build a bomb, that's exactly what I'd want the Americans to do, is open the complex back up, start the reactors up, go after the plutonium in the spent fuel pool, reprocess it, and go ahead and build the bomb. And that's exactly what they did, and the Americans stood by. What happened to uranium enrichment? The North Koreans stopped because they were caught on that. Heavens no, the Americans walked away. They were able to speed up the uranium enrichment program. So the real question is, you know, I mean, who in the world brought us to this point where the North Koreans were able to build a bomb in six months to a year? Mm. Uh, and that's what the agreed framework, you know, had avoided. Uh, and now because the U.S. walked away, they were able to do it. So as I understand it, uh, at present, we estimate that North Korea may have around uh, eight nuclear warheads made from plutonium and an unknown number of uh, warheads made from highly enriched uranium. Is that about right? No, so it's not sure they have all uh, all of the plutonium weaponized into eight warheads. Mm -hmm. so we can say they have around eight bombs worth, uh, and they, they may be able to make a bomb if their design has progressed with less than six kilograms. Right. So, so, you know, they, they may have uh, six to 10 nuclear weapons worth uh, of plutonium. And then the uranium is much more difficult to estimate. Right. But I have, I have made sort of statistical estimates based on everything that I saw uh, on everything that we've been able to view. And as we put it all together at this point, as I put it all together, I think North Korea has less than 50 kilograms of plutonium, but they may have as much as a thousand kilograms of highly enriched uranium. And how many and kilograms thousand, does that normally go into a thousand kilograms. And for highly enriched uranium, sort of a, a you know a reasonable number to use is 20 kilograms per bomb. Got it. So that's 50, kilo, 50 bombs worth. So the North Koreans may have somewhere between, you know, 40 and 60 bombs worth yeah. of bomb fuel. Very little of that is plutonium. The rest of it is highly enriched uranium. 
And of course, they have tested six of them. When North Korea tests a nuclear device, are we able to tell by its signature whether it's a plutonium or a uranium device? No, uh, because in a, uh, first of all, you can't tell from the seismic signals. You know, that's what we pick up. Uh, they would have to have a venting of radioactive yeah. gases, uh, and they would have to vent the radioactive gas, and we would have to be able to collect it very quickly in order to be able to differentiate. And so far, uh, the best that we can tell, that has not been done on any of them. And so all, all we know is that they are nuclear. There's, there are a couple of tests that have vented, uh, that have been picked up, but they were picked up too late to be able to discern between highly enriched uranium uh -huh. and, and plutonium. So the only thing that we have then in these six tests and actually, it's a it's a good point that allows me uh, to make another point. When you said, you know, they haven't invited you since, and how how do we know what they do? Is so what I've tried to do, you know, in these last uh, twelve plus years, is to use the knowledge that I've gained uh, both by visiting the Yongbyon facility and by talking to their nuclear experts. And then knowing something about bombs and putting all of those together uh, and then saying, okay, look, here's sort of my best estimates. So I've gone through those six tests. And, and in my opinion, four of those tests used plutonium and two of them used highly enriched uranium. Ah. Uh, but it's sort of, it, it's, a, it's a very complex interplay of trying to understand what they did. The ones I'm most confident about are the first two tests because their director, Lee Hang Sop, uh, whom I met with, you know, several times, he mm -hmm. told me that the first two were, were plutonium. And I believe him. Uh, coming back to a very basic question that I probably should have asked at the start, why does North Korea have nuclear weapons? Why does it see them as, as necessary? Well, you know, I'm just a scientist. So I can always use that excuse. Of course, many people have many different uh, ideas. Uh, and uh, my own, and, and this is just the, you know, my, my own thoughts, when you look at, at regimes like that, you know, particularly the dictatorial regime, uh, and you look at that regime, and especially now, you know, since the 1970s and 80s, when its economy has been in great, great difficulty, they're worried about the uh, ever-increasing power of its neighbor down south. Uh, it has to be for their security, for the country's security, and for the security of their regime. Uh, and, and so the nuclear weapons, you know, they would think would protect them against regime change from the outside. Uh, and they're also, they're a big deal, you know, in terms of the internal prestige, you know, for a regime yeah. uh, to be able, particularly, I mean, this is why they show off all those missiles, mm -hmm. you know, you don't, you don't particularly see much when you show off a nuclear warhead. It doesn't look like much. But when you see those huge missiles yeah. and you see them going up, that's really impressive. And so I, I think, you know, the main reason is for the security of the country. And particularly, you know, since the 1990s, they've been a weakened country, particularly compared to South Korea and their conventional, although they have a huge conventional army, they have huge conventional firepower, uh, it still does not, in their opinion, give them the security of the regime and the nuclear weapons do that. The problem, of course, is 
as we've watched them grow the arsenal, the more and more the nuclear weapons they develop, the more it really becomes a part of what they believe uh, provides the security of their regime. Yeah. Now, your book, you've, you've titled Hinge Points. Tell us what is that concept of hinge points? And uh, uh, I think there's about 10 or so that you enumerate in your books. So we can't go through all of them. But tell us the biggest hinge point uh, that you, you can see. So I, I'd like to mention uh, three, you, okay. you know, the, the, the biggest, I've already pretty much described it. And so first of all, a hinge point is a key decision point. It's a key decision point where, uh, in, in, in the case of North Korea, it was sort of some advance uh, in the nuclear arena triggered a response from the United States. And then the decision was this hinge point. So it's like a fork in the road. Could have gone one way, could have gone another way. It's precisely, it's the fork in the road. And it typically, uh, a hinge point in this case, turned out where bad decisions had bad consequences. Right. Uh, and so the first hinge point, and the biggest one, because that's the time where we would have had the best chance in order to stop North Korea from developing nuclear weapons. I do not believe they had any nuclear weapons in 2002. Uh, when the Bush administration walked away, and they didn't just walk away from the agreed framework, John Bolton very specifically in his first book says that uranium enrichment revelation was the hammer he needed to shatter the agreed framework. So they were determined to kill the agreed framework because they felt that you know, the agreed framework was a bad deal. North Korea should never be allowed to have anything nuclear whatsoever. And in fact, there were many of them who believed North Korea should not be allowed to exist. So now, so they walked away and I've already explained what happened is when six months to a year, they restarted the whole complex, they built the bomb and then the Bush administration did nothing. So all of a sudden they got them into, you know, allowing them basically to build a bomb. And they did it because they were concerned about uranium enrichment. At best, at that time, that was a nascent program mm -hmm. that would take perhaps 10 more years to get to the point to build a bomb. So what they did is they traded you know, a risk that would take 10 years to develop for one that took only six months to build a bomb. That's a bad decision, and that's a hinge point. A, a second sort of set if you want me to go on for sure, morning. yeah, tell it. You've got uh, three, uh, so tell us the other two. Yeah, I'll just do three, but I'll lump two together in, in the Obama administration because they're related. So in 2009, right after uh, President Obama took over, uh, then uh, and at that time, uh, they were actually uh, at the tail end of the Bush administration diplomacy with North Korea because. After you know walking away in 2004, they made an agreement in 2005. The United States, with other parties uh, in the neighborhood, uh, made an agreement. Uh, the Americans almost walked away from that immediately, but then eventually the North Koreans tested in 2006. The Americans came back. That is, Bush administration 2007, 2008 had diplomatic ties with uh, with North Korea and the inspectors were allowed to go back in. That's the state at which President Obama comes in. President Obama comes in. Uh, as you know, he made the statement, look, I will reach out my hand if you unclench your fist. 
That's what he said to countries like Iran and, yeah. and to North Korea. North Korea instead hit them right between the eyes with their fist and launched a rocket mm. in April. And that then, the Obama administration walked away from the North Koreans. North Koreans were then able to expel the Americans, expel the IAE inspectors, and in a couple of months' time, did the second nuclear test. And so essentially, they set up the Obama administration as I develop in the book, the real idea is North Koreans did this all on purpose yeah. to get that sort of reaction to a rocket launch, which quite frankly, the rocket launch wasn't a terrible big deal. I mean, it failed anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, of course, it gives you a little bit more information about missiles, but it was it was a rocket launch. And, and so when the Americans reacted to that, the North Koreans were then able to go and do a second test, which worked well. So that was uh, another hinge point. But the North Koreans really drove the Americans in that direction. And then in 2012, right after Kim Jong-un had taken over because his father died yeah. uh, in December of 2011, and the, the Americans again, there in the Obama administration for a very short period of time, actually had diplomacy with North Korea they had agreed on a deal, which was called a leap day deal because it was signed February 29th. And then North Koreans again come back and they do a rocket launch. When the Americans said, you know, no missile, no rocket launches, the North Koreans had a different understanding. They just said, we won't do a missile launch. And again, at that point, instead of taking advantage of the leap day opening, that is to get back into Yongbyon, actually to get a much closer look at those centrifuges than I got, they walked away. And so that was the Obama, you know, hinge points. And then the, the, the last one, you know, which we're living with the consequences now mm -hmm. is the Hanoi summit. Four years ago, February 2019, President Trump and uh, Chairman Kim Jong-un sat down in Hanoi for their second summit meeting. What went wrong in Hanoi? Did Kim Jong-un offer a bad deal to President Trump, as many in D.C. and John Bolton seem to think? So shortly after that walk away from Trump, I wrote, I wrote an article uh, and in essence said it was a big mistake to walk away. So even though Trump was congratulated by both sides of the political aisle in this country, he shouldn't have walked uh, away. And, and so what happened there is, although there, I mean, it, it was... The Trump administration, and particularly with John Bolton's help, and this isn't just my saying so, but Bolton specifically says so in his book, The Room Where It Happened, he essentially explains how he coached Trump uh, to walk away because Bolton was still, now as he was uh, in the 2000s, not ready to make any sort of a deal uh, with the North Koreans. So he, he coached Trump to walk away. But in this case, uh, Kim Jong-un and the North Koreans also missed an opportunity. Uh, in the end, what the deal would have been uh, is the North Koreans were going to shut down this Yongbyon nuclear complex. All of it? All of the North Korea, all of the Yongbyon nuclear complex. So that's However, the plutonium and the uranium. So the uranium centrifuge uh, facility present at Yongbyon yeah. would have been shut down. And more yeah. importantly, again, 
it would have been an opportunity for us to get into that facility yeah. because we know they have another facility or two. And I cannot believe that those two use different technologies. Yeah. And, you know, I made my best estimate on that 2010 visit. All of the world's estimates outside on their uranium enrichment capability are based on that visit. Uh -huh. And I said at the time, I could be off by a factor of four, depending on what they use for their rotor material. I gave my best estimate that they use what's called mar-aging steel, in which case it's the high end of the four. And that's what I've used for my estimate. But we didn't know. We mm. could have found out. So, yeah, they, they offered to shut down that whole facility. But, of course, the Americans said, you have other centrifuge facilities. You have weapons. You have weapons manufacturing plants. So this is only a part. And they also called it an old, sort of worn-out part of the complex. And that's just simply not true. I try to explain to people that the plutonium facilities in Yangbyon, even though they are old, they're newer than the plutonium facilities we have at the Los Alamos Laboratory oh. or any that we have in the United States. So mm. they're not worn out, uh, you know, from that standpoint. So, and then what I try to explain in the book, and for this reason, you really need to read the book. Uh, I mean, much yeah. of, the, of what I tell you, you, you know, you can just, you can disagree with, but you have to go look in the book and the case that I tried to build mm -hmm. for how we missed the boat in Hanoi. The, the big piece there was that actually Kim, in one of his letters to Donald Trump, yeah. actually offered to shut down the Nuclear Weapons Institute. Mm -hmm. okay. I've tried to check with the people in his administration whether they knew what the Nuclear Weapons Institute was. Right. They had a responsibility. They actually saw that letter. Mm -hmm. Bolton Pompeo and John Kelly saw that letter of September 6th of 2018. And uh, essentially, from what I can tell, none of them really knew what a nuclear weapons institute was. They just said it's one of those things that, you know, North Korea makes up. Well, their nuclear weapons institute, from what I understand, the guy that heads that institute is the guy that showed me around Yongbyon. It's their Los Alamos. It's their brain center of their nuclear weapons program. I How actually, uh, I spoke yeah. recently to one former Trump administration official who believes firmly that the Korean, uh, the North Korean Nuclear Weapons Institute was simply one part of Yongbyon. Therefore, he didn't get the sense that it was anything uh, separate or significant. So shutting down Yongbyon would mean also shutting down the Nuclear Weapons Institute. Yeah, so I, d I don't believe that. Uh, and for, for example, the Nuclear Weapons Institute itself uh, wouldn't really reside within Yongbyon. It wouldn't make any sense to put that in there with the reactors in the centrifuge facility. That facility sits in Pyongyang someplace. Uh, it's so, sort of the nerve center uh, of a technical institute like Los Alamos. Uh, and it's the one that really controls the design and all of the integration of the nuclear warhead uh, with the delivery vehicles. And, and if you take a look at the KCNA photos, of the so-called disco ball in March of 2016, uh, and then the so-called hydrogen bomb in, in September of 2017, uh, the person that's explaining those bombs to Kim Jong-un is none other uh, than Director Lee Hyung-sup, who used to be in uh, Yongbyon. 
But when I went the last time, you know, they said, no, he's not here anymore. You know, he's in Pyongyang. And so they just, the, the Trump administration did not think through what mm -hmm. it really meant for them to offer it up. They did not think through for what benefit we would get by being able to get back into Yangbyon. They did not make a good technically informed risk management decision. Yeah, and, and you say that in various places in your book. In fact, you you throughout the, the history of the North Korean nuclear program, you you accuse those in Washington Washington DC of not doing a risk benefit analysis. Uh, why do you think that is? Because the politics comes first. You know, it's not that somebody in the government wasn't able to get their hands on what the technical analysis is. You know, even though I was not part of the government, after every one of my visits, I went to Washington. I talked to the people in Washington. We had a good sense of what's actually there in, in Washington. But it's one thing, and, and actually, you know, I got that information uh, to very high levels uh, of the government. You know, I saw Secretary Condi Rice uh, when I first went. I saw Secretary Hillary Clinton uh, when I went. Later on, I saw Secretary Pompeo. Uh, and in between, you know, I talked to the people in the Department of Energy, uh, you know, in the various intel agencies from the standpoint of, of sort of my discussion to tell them what I found. So that, and then I've written, you know, scores and scores of papers. Uh, I've given almost 300 presentations on North Korea, and all of those include some assessment of their nuclear capabilities. So it's not that our government wouldn't have been able to get its hands on that. It just shows it's been blinded by this attitudes toward North Korea instead of approaching it. So not that North Koreas are good guys. They're very pragmatic guys. They were clearly you know, off in the direction of building the nuclear weapons for their security. But we had these opportunities all the way up through Hanoi. And my biggest concern now is that whatever I've told you, that it's over. Mm. Last year, there were a lot of people expecting North Korea to conduct its seventh nuclear test. The last one, the sixth one, which supposedly the hydrogen bomb was back in uh, August, September of 2017. So it's been more than five years since they've last done a nuclear test. What would be the, the marginal technical benefits of an additional nuclear test by North Korea at this stage? That's very important, no question. Because as I mentioned, I've sort of laid out whether they use plutonium or highly enriched uranium. Uh, and then I give my assessment uh, as to what they were trying to accomplish with those different tests. And it turns out that the, the, the North Koreans, what they've shown us is they have almost a staggering number of delivery vehicles, different delivery vehicles. Uh, and, and you need to mate the, the nuclear warhead with the delivery vehicle. And so they have nowhere near enough nuclear tests to be able to put those nuclear warheads and have confidence that they're actually able to survive, you know, whatever the trajectory and, and impact is. And so from what they said that they have wanted to develop, which is both the tactical, meaning the short range, which could reach South Korea, more of the medium range to reach Japan, and then, you know, the ICBM, they have a lot of work left to do with their nuclear warhead designs 
and testing. So whether they would, uh, and, and in my opinion, I think they've only tested two uh, highly enriched uranium devices, which mm -hmm. would be for their shorter range. And uh, because of that, I think, uh, you know, that uh, we, we have to assume that the North Koreans could deliver a nuclear warhead to any place in South Korea and most of Japan. However, I believe they cannot yet deliver a nuclear weapon to the United States uh, of America. Another nuclear test would be helpful. I want to come back. So uh, wait, hang on. So the last thing you said was that another nuclear test would be helpful for North Korea. Is that correct? That's correct. Right. So you do expect a seventh test at some point. We don't know when. Oh, I, I expected uh, them to do one uh, last year. Okay. Uh, and so, you know, people have asked me, so why didn't they? And of course, yeah. uh, you know, the Intel yeah. agencies, South Korea, everybody else has said a test is imminent. They've been saying that since last April uh, yeah. or so. They're, they're, you know, politically, for the most part, this would be or has been a good time to do a test because uh, Russia and China are not uh, and clearly not going to sanction North Korea anymore for almost anything. Uh, and so politically, they could get away with it. There might be some technical issues uh, that they are dealing with uh, or, or trying to decide, do they want to go for a, a warhead that could be put in an ICBM? Do they want to have a little more confidence than having sort of one and a half tests, uh, I'm sorry, two tests for the uh, highly enriched uranium? They might be going back and forth on that, but maybe the biggest reason may actually be, I've dealt a lot with the Chinese. Mm -hmm. I've talked a lot with the Chinese about the North Korean nuclear program. And, and what the Chinese are really concerned about is North Korean nuclear tests. And so I'm sure that the Chinese government has put a lot more pressure on North Korea not to do a nuclear test versus developing more weapons. You know, they don't necessarily want North Korea to do that but the big muscle they're going to put on to make sure North Korea doesn't do any more nuclear tests. And the North might be listening. Why, why is, so two-part question here. Number one, why is China so concerned about North Korea nuclear tests? And number two, can't nuclear tests be done with computer modeling these days? No. Okay, that's a very simple, and that, that goes for United States uh, as well as Russia, China, etc. So the modeling can help you uh, as to how you want to design your warhead and then how you analyze and everything. But in the end, it's not a substitute for nuclear tests. The difference of having um, uh, essentially confidence in your warhead, the United States has done 1,054 nuclear tests. 24 were done in, in conjunction with the Brits. Uh, the Russians have done 715, the Chinese 45, the Brits 45, the French 210, the Russians, the Pakistanis, and the Indians uh, six each. And so the, uh, the, the tests are important. Uh, computers alone uh, don't do the trick. The Chinese are concerned because the test site is so close to the Chinese border. So are they worried about it from a radiation perspective? So, or? Absolutely. They're worried about the radiation. And when there was a little seepage of radiation, I actually, you know, one must say the North Koreans have done an exceptional job of containing those nuclear tests, uh, including the big one, you know, which made the side of Mount Montop sort of slouch a bit. They've done a very good job. Uh, however, you know, we in the U.S. and others have had blowouts 
uh, where you can get substantial uh, radioactivity blown out uh, of the hole. And the Chinese are really worried about that. And the, the people in Xilin province, you know, right across uh, the border, are very concerned. And when the big one was tested in September of 2017, the tremors were felt uh, uh -huh. in, in the Chinese uh, neighboring towns. Uh, and that scared the daylights out of them. And the Chinese government was very unhappy with the North Koreans. Coming back to the uh, the issue of a, a, re a delivery vehicle, for an ICBM, how critical is it for North Korea to test the re-entry uh, module? To be able to survive re-entry, uh, it's very important. And so I certainly, I'd have very little confidence that your warhead can survive essentially the entire sequence, you know, and particularly uh, the re-entry. You know, North Koreans have shown us where they've done tests uh, of the nose cones, you know, in order to try to convince us that, yes, that they've done that. But, but the North Koreans so far, none of their ICBM tests have been on a standard sort of flat trajectory. All of, it, uh, all of them have been in a lofted trajectory, I think for a couple of reasons, probably one of them to keep them close by. I don't think they have the ability uh, to monitor everything as they would send it out at large distances. But unless you do that, it's very hard to actually understand the exact, the, the G loads, the stresses, the thermal stresses, the temperatures that the warhead package would see. And without knowing all of that, I would not have great confidence that it could actually uh, survive. Mm -hmm. I also, I wouldn't have great confidence in, in the missiles themselves. You, you know, the, the, the U.S. still today, you know, tests its missiles mm -hmm. multiple times a year, you know, both to test the missiles and the people actually doing the tests. And again, the North Koreans so far have done none, mm -hmm. you know, in a normal trajectory. And so right. those are all the things that still need to be done. Coming back to China uh, for a moment, you, uh, you said there that one of the reasons why North Korea may not have already done a seventh nuclear test is because of pressure from China, because China's concerned about radiation leakage and other things. You wrote in your book that the United States is wrong when it says that China can solve the North Korean nuclear weapons issue. Why is that? Well, first of all, the, the North Koreans, well, first of all, they can't control the North Koreans. So, so they, the, the Chinese in the end, they can influence, they can push them in certain directions, but they cannot control the North Koreans. The North Koreans do not like being under the heavy hand of China. Uh, and so China has nowhere near the influence on North Korea that we believe it has. Uh, and in fact, that several of the administrations have looked much too much to China to tell the Chinese to get the North Koreans to behave. They don't have the capacity to do so. Uh, and in fact, I also write in the book that actually uh, it has the opposite uh, effect uh, from, uh, from helping the situation that uh, what that does uh, is, uh, in essence, by the, by the way that we sanction uh, North Korea then, it actually does drive them in the direction of China in terms of economic dependence instead of pulling them mm. you know, towards South Korea. So the business of both sanctioning and then expecting China to solve the problem, neither one of those has gotten the right uh, response.
What do you think of the uh, the U.S. policy of denuclearization of North Korea? Sometimes uh, that that policy name has been complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization (CVID). Is it feasible? Can it be achieved in one human lifetime? Well, so first of all, CVID is not achievable because in in the end, nothing is irreversible. So I, I don't know why in the world they even put the irreversible, except for the political optics of that. I mean, the North Koreans could always go back, and especially now that they have already demonstrated they can do all. They can make plutonium. They can make hydrogen. They can make missiles. They've done nuclear tests. They know how to build a, a bomb. They've done all of that. That knowledge is not going to go to waste. So nothing is irreversible. You can make it more difficult, but it's not irreversible. So my view was, and then the verifiable part mm. also. Uh, if you look at all of the facilities and everything that's involved in this, and the fact, uh, you know, that for bombs, you only need, you know, many kilograms worth of plutonium or a couple of tens of kilograms of highly enriched uranium, uh, you can never verify that all of that is gone in, in North Korea. The only way you have any hope is, is if you have an antagonistic relationship, there's no way to verify. Mm. If you have a cooperative relationship, there might be the possibility. And so one of the things that I'd actually suggested is the way to perhaps get North Koreans to demilitarize, yeah. uh, allow them to keep a civilian nuclear program, a civilian space program, and work with them cooperatively to convert that military complex into a civilian complex. That, I think, had some chance a few years ago. Those chances have become less and less, uh, and especially so uh, as I look back at this year, uh, I'm sorry, 2022 timeframe since early February, all indications are uh, that Kim Jong-un and North Korea is going in a very different direction. Uh, and this idea of seeking normalization with the United States uh, rather than looking to China and Russia uh, has gone away. Uh, and so with that, no, there won't be any denuclearization. Having said that, though, we should be ready in case North Korea flips uh, and goes in a different direction. There are some who, who say uh, that Kim Jong-un would never give up his nuclear arsenal no matter what. Do you believe it's dangerous to say that? Uh, yeah, my, my reply to that was actually when I'm asked, do you know if Kim Jong-un will give up his nuclear weapons? I say, no, I don't know. And then I add, I don't think he knows either because it depends. Mm -hmm. mm. <laughs> now, we've been talking for a little bit over an hour now, so really, I've only got one area uh, left to uh, to ask you about before we uh, we finish this episode. These days, and I, I live here in Seoul, South Korea. I've been here for over 20 years now. Uh, and these days, it seems that the question of whether South Korea should get its own nuclear weapons or whether the US should once again station its nuclear weapons here for the first time since 1991, that question is, getting very much discussed here in Seoul, uh, not just in closed door discussions, but also out in the open, in the media, at conferences. Are you hearing this too? And what do you think about it? Oh, there's no question I hear that. Because uh, once I stopped going to North Korea, uh, I did continue to go to South Korea. And so I've been to South Korea many times. 
uh, I've worked with the South Koreans, uh, not only on this problem, but I've, I've also worked with the South Koreans uh, on nuclear energy, because the South Koreans have become essentially the best reactor builders mm. uh, in the world. Wow. And, and that, that feeds into uh, my answer to your question. Uh, I just recently wrote an article uh, in 38 North mm. uh, about the issue of uh, should South Korea you know, build its own bomb? And my answer is absolutely not. Uh, first of all, uh, what's not recognized is just, it's not just building a bomb, it's building an arsenal. And you've got a neighbor who has an expanding arsenal. And so you're going to be uh, in this arms race with this neighbor and focusing uh, on nuclear weapons which will have an enormous impact on the whole rest of, of your country. You will most likely lose your leadership in nuclear energy. You might even lose the nuclear electricity in South Korea because you may not be able to get the uranium and the enrichment to feed into your reactors, which today gives you one third of the electricity. And so- Why would that be? Would, would that be because South Korea would would be sanctioned by uh, uranium exporters or something like that? South Korea would have to walk away from the non-proliferation treaty uh, and, and say that it's developing the bombs. And so it's going to have difficulty uh, getting nuclear cooperation from anyone, certainly not from the United States. And then the third reason, which in my opinion is actually the most important, the last thing I'd want to see right now in South Korea uh, is to have a South Korean president with his hand on the nuclear button and Kim Jong-un uh, with his hand on the nuclear button. And, and for all of the things that go back and forth, whether it's drones coming across or the West Sea shooting, you, you know, why in the world would you want two inexperienced nuclear leaders there with their fingers or hands on the nuclear button, sort of looking across the DMZ? That is a terribly, terribly... Uh, situation uh, where I think, you know, the possibility of nuclear war would go up substantially. So although people did say that back in the late 1990s, when Pakistan first tested its bomb and India and Pakistan have managed to live side by side with wars of words, but without nuclear strikes for more than 20 years. Yeah, so I, I think that the North South Korea situation would be uh, much more dangerous than the India and the Pakistan. Mm -hmm. I mean, they've looked at each other, you know, since 1947, they've gone through various skirmishes. Uh, and it's still, I mean, still one of the most dangerous places uh, in the world. But I, I think North and South Korea uh, would be worse than that. Do you think that the United States would turn a blind eye to uh, South Korea developing its own nuclear weapons? It can't. After all of what the U.S. has done to promote nonproliferation, to keep nuclear weapons uh, out of the hands of more leaders in the world, and then looking at the danger that it would now face by having, again, an independent nuclear arsenal you know, in the hands mm -hmm. uh, of the South Korean leader. Uh, the U.S., in my opinion, must do everything to convince South Korea that that is a move in the wrong direction. And for that reason, it will not turn a blind eye. And what about stationing U.S. nuclear assets here on South Korean soil as it once did? Yeah, there, there are people uh, who've made very good points to say that's also a, um, a very 
a, a, a very dangerous thing to do. You gain essentially nothing by doing that, and then you actually provide the locations and the potential for North Koreans to, to try to take out mm. uh, the U.S. nuclear assets. Why in the world would you do that? Mm. What's much more important is for U.S. and, and South Korea. And I mean, the U.S. does uh, have a lot of work to do to convince the South Korean public. And this administration has certainly tried that. And, and it's not, to me, it's not just the nuclear umbrella as such. Uh, what I would be convinced by if I live in South Korea is the alliance. Mm -hmm. the, the alliance, that's exactly where you want to be. And then in the end, you know, it's good for the United States. You know, this isn't, I mean, unfortunately, in the Trumpian world, uh, it was sort of a, a, a racket, you know, for protection. Yeah, the alliance looked a bit shaky then. But, and that's not what it is. South Korea helps us by being our allies mm -hmm. in Northeast Asia, for heaven's sakes. And so, in my opinion, uh, we've got a good alliance. Whatever uh, needs to be done should be done to convince each other. But stationing nuclear weapons there, uh, and the worst thing would be uh, developing their own independent nuclear arsenal. Coming back to if South Korea did choose to develop its own nuclear arsenal, would it have to actually physically test them like North Korea has? Because you made the point earlier that computers are not enough. Modeling doesn't work without the actual testing. Yeah, so we don't know the answer for that for sure. If I were in charge of their nuclear weapons program, I want to test it. And then I will leave it up to you to find which province in South Korea uh, would host the underground site for such a test. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, yeah. Uh, okay. Why did you write this book, Sig? Is it just history? Is it a warning? What actually are you advocating? So, so first of all, I mean, I was inspired uh, by the book to tell the story of my uh, seven visits. So I, I wanted the book to have sort of two effects. One for the general public uh, is to actually give the sort of detail that I do uh, when I meet North Korean diplomats, when I need, uh, meet North Korean scientists, when I go out to the various places uh, that John Lewis took me to, to actually show him, hey, th these North Koreans are not all demons. You know, they're real people. To give them a better insight uh, into North Korea, because in the end, it's important what the American public sees. Uh, and here in, in the U.S., what we see for the most part of North Korea, it used to be goose-stepping soldiers. Now it's just missiles being launched uh, one after another. I, I wanted to have, for them to have a sort of more complete understanding uh, of North Korea. And then on the policy side, I, I actually, I, I wanted the United States government to go and learn from the mistakes that have been made in the past and also to understand Hey, this is a big issue. Uh, you know, as I say at the end of the book, one of the problems, in addition to this lack of technically, you know, informed risk management, is also that North Korea has been down the totem pole uh, of the things that are important uh, to the government. Mm. Uh, and I want to make sure the government understands that there are only three nations in the world that pose a nuclear threat to us. China, Russia, and North Korea, for heaven's sakes, pay attention to North Korea. So that's what I'd hope to accomplish. 
are you uh, still in touch with the North Koreans? So I've not uh, uh, communicated uh, with the North Koreans for some time now. You, you've not sent a copy of your book to the uh, mission to the United Nations in New York? I did not. Okay. Do you plan to? No, I'll let you do that. Okay. <laughs> well, if they ever invite me around for a, uh, for a coffee, I might do that. Now, you have uh, created a companion page on the internet for the book over at the website of the Middlebury Institute for International Studies at Monterey. Uh, people can find that uh, at the URL nonproliferation.org slash hinge-points-home. We'll put the link up in the show notes. Uh, what does that page add that the book cannot? Yeah, so again, for both of those reasons, you know, why I wrote the book. So on one hand, I, I'm able to put lots of photographs uh, into uh, the websites. And so I have photographs from each of my seven visits Again, showing them both the nuclear facility, the people, and all the different places that I visited. So, so it paints more of a human picture mm. of North Korea. It it has more of the specifics of the dialogue, you know, during various meetings, whether it was with the education ministry uh, or with the foreign ministry. I have all of that uh, there, and and then also. It's meant for scholars uh, with all the details and other things that are there so for people who want to come back in the future, again, to look at uh, at North Korea. I wanted to make sure that the information uh, is there more than I was able to put in the book. Okay, that's that's a, a great answer. We It's a very important book, I hope. Uh, a lot of people who are interested in uh, North Korea in nuclear proliferation get it and, and read it and think about it. Thank you once again for coming on the NK News podcast today, Dr. Siegfried Hecker. Uh, we really appreciate your time. So, Jacko, if I may just add at the end, I was mm. going to say at the beginning, uh, but you uh, you read my bio as it existed when I was finishing the book. I have since then retired from Stanford University. Yes. However, since I'm not done yet in the nuclear world, uh, I'm now a part-time professor of practice uh, in the Department of Nuclear Engineering at Texas A&M University. And uh, I'm also professor of practice at the Monterey Institute, at the Middlebury Institute in Monterey. So ah. I have those two affiliations. And the reason for doing that uh, is to uh, continue to be able to work with young people. That's what I enjoy. Where are you based, sir? In Santa Fe, New Mexico, close to Los Alamos. Ah, okay. So you can drive to Texas and you can drive to California. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and we can do it the same way we're doing it now, virtually. Also virtually, exactly. That's right. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the end of our podcast today. If you already have an NK News account, and if you're a think tank, business or academic institution, take a look at NK Pro. Our NK Pro platform offers unparalleled services specifically catering to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. You can inquire about access and a free trial membership by sending an email to membership at nknews.org today. Our thanks as always go to Brian Betts and Darius Dare for facilitating this episode and to our post-recording producer genius, Gabby Magnuson, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, etc. Thank you very much and listen again next time. 